0: Revelation chapter 19, <clears throat> by way of introduction to our text today, I'm going to give a brief recap because chapter 19 is sort of a, a milestone in the book of Revelation, and so I think it, it warrants a recap of, of just what we're doing, where, we, where we've been, where we're going, and so on. Uh, If you've been with us, you know that the name Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. And uh, we get the word apocalypse from that. And when we hear the word apocalypse, we think chaos and catastrophe. But that's not what the word apocalypse actually means. Uh, Literally, what the word apocalypse means, it means unveiling or uncovering. Uh, it is uh, bringing out into the open, and what this is is the unveiling or the uncovering of Jesus Christ and His plan for the world. That's what the Book of Revelation is all about. Uh, the Lord gives to us um, a, an outline of the entire book in one verse. It's found in Revelation chapter one, verse nineteen. Uh, When Jesus appeared to John, gave him a vision, and here's what he instructed John to do. He said, write the things which you've seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so again, that one verse gives us the outline of the entire book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus tells John to write the things which you have seen, speaking of the specific vision that John had of Jesus in chapter 1. And next, Jesus told John to write about the things which are, which speaks of the state of the church. And uh, he then, in chapters two and three, gives a word to the church. This is both present day, John's present day, and also applies to our present day in the sense that he speaks about specific churches that existed during John's day, and a word that the Lord has for these specific churches, um, but it's also the, the message that he has for them, uh, you can extrapolate that and apply it to the church of Christ that spans over 2,000 years. And so we see the church of today reflected in verses, or chapters 2 and 3. But then Jesus also said to write the things which will take place after this, meta in the, in the Greek, and it speaks of the last days, And that's what John writes about in Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 22, through the end of the book. And when we began Revelation chapter 4, we transitioned there from the past and the present into the future looking at a time that is known as the Great Tribulation. Uh, this is when Satan himself is going to empower the future world leader known as the Antichrist or the Beast, synonymous terms, uh, in a seven year quest. To rule the world, but this rebellion ultimately is going to fail miserably um, because you know you, you can 't come up against the Lord and His people and expect to have ultimate victory. No, you will have ultimate failure and it will fail miserably. What God does is he raptures his church, which is which is a, a word that just means to catch away or to catch up or to to snatch up. God takes his church out of the world. He calls us up into heaven, and at a future point in time, the church will be raptured. And then what happens, having taken his church out of the world, then God will pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. Now, as we've been seeing, the Bible is very clear. That God is a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's got a God of mercy. People say, well, gosh, how could a loving God send people to hell? Listen, God doesn't, doesn't send people to hell, first of all. People send themselves to hell. Uh, God has so desperately desired that we would not go to hell that he gave Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to die on a cross for our sins in our place. The Bible says God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we're yet sinners... Christ died for us. So so God doesn't send people to hell. People get to hell by literally climbing over the dead body of Jesus Christ. That's how people get to hell. God says, over my dead body. And some people are dumb enough to say, okay. And they reject Christ. And literally over his dead body, they go to hell. So, So God doesn't send people to hell. And God's heart is that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And so what we see throughout the book of Revelation, even after he's taken his church up to heaven, God throughout the judgments that are being poured out, he's still giving opportunity for repentance. And so probably during this seven-year tribulation period will be the greatest evangelistic period in all of human history where the people that are left on the earth and seeing what's going down, not everybody is going to reject Christ. There will be many thousands who turn to Christ during the tribulation period. Uh, And so uh, the the rapture of the church, the wrath of God, still God's saving grace being poured out, Now in regards to the rapture, it's interesting, through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the word for church, which is ecclesia, the word for church, it's used 18 times and then all of a sudden you get to to, to Revelation chapter 4 where God has raptured the church and now the church is called up to heaven and you don't see it mentioned again in the book of Revelation until right here in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, and, uh, and so here we are, we're in Revelation 19, we pick it up in verse 1, we read, After these things I, John speaking, heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. <coughs> Revelation 19, it picks up after the fall of Babylon. Babylon has fallen spiritually, it's fallen politically, it's it's fallen economically, Um, and this is at the very end of the seven-year tribulation period. God has been systematically judging Satan and Antichrist and the world. He's been pouring out the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments, and here now, Jesus and his church are returning To the earth. This is exactly as Jesus promised. Jesus is coming to crush Antichrist once and for all at the Battle of Armageddon, which we'll look at next week. Um, And he's coming to rule and reign upon the earth. Now, there's two times in Scripture that we see the door of heaven opening. We see the door of heaven opening. Uh, Once in Revelation chapter 4, this is when the church is raptured into heaven. The door of heaven opens to receive the church of God. And the only other time we see the door of heaven open is here in, in chapter 19 when the door of heaven opens for Jesus Christ's return and for the church to return with him. Uh, during the millennial reign of Christ. Now, we're going to look at that more next week, but just so you get a picture of where we're going to go to and how this all unfolds in in chapter 19, get a sneak peek there beginning in verse 11. John says, Now I saw heaven opened. Here it is, opened again. hasn't been opened since Revelation 4. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So clearly Jesus Christ here, and here's the church with him, verse 14. And the armies, of, of, uh, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, Followed him on white horses. And so Jesus Christ will come. He will return to the earth. He will come with his church that he has raptured out with him. But today, the big picture is on this exaltation of the victory over Babylon. That's what our focus is on today. Heaven exalting, <coughs> excuse me, over the defeat. Of Babylon. And you've got this great multitude that's depicted here, they're in heaven, and here they are, they're crying out, hallelujah, that's the cry. Now, hallelujah is a, is a Hebrew compound word. Uh, it, Hallel, the first part of it, means praise, and Yah is combined with it, hallelujah, um, and Yah is short for Jehovah. Jehovah means the unchanging, eternal, self-existent, covenant-keeping God. So what's being proclaimed here is, is hallelujah, praise Jehovah. And we see this repeated four times in the next several verses. We see it here in verse 1. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Continuing in verse 2, for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot, speaking of Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her fornication, And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as if it were, verse 6, uh, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderers, thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, curiously, we're very familiar with this word, Hallelujah. Like, as Christians, it's, it's sort of, everybody has heard, Hallelujah. We hear the handles. Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus at Christmas, which by the way was not written concerning the birth of Christ, it was written concerning the second coming of Christ, these verses are the inspiration for Handel's Messiah, Um, just a piece of trivia there, but Hallelujah, it's this thing that we're very familiar with, but this is the only time the word appears in the New Testament. The entire New Testament, it's just right here in Revelation chapter 19. All the other uses of hallelujah are in the Old Testament. But listen, this exhortation to praise God, it fills the pages of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us this, Therefore, by Him, speaking of Jesus, let us continually, that word is key, offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving... (laughs) Thanks to his name. That word continually, literally, it means through all. And what that means is that we are to praise God through everything, through the ups, through the downs, through the good, through the bad, and everything in between, we are to praise God. Every part of our life is to be lived in praise of the Lord, through joy, through sorrow, through laughter, through tears. Why? Well, because he's good to us, and the Bible is filled with reasons, not just exhortations to praise God, but filled with reasons why we, we should praise God. I mean, the Bible talks about his holiness and his mercy, his loving kindness, his goodness, his nearness to us, his mighty works, his creation, his salvation, it talks to us about Jesus and his grace and how he delivers us from Satan and sin and death. Um, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that we have to praise the Lord. I think it's a really healthy activity for Christians. We get into sometimes our own little pity party and stuff that's going down in our lives. And I think it's a good exercise just to start writing all of the reasons that you have to praise the Lord. If you keep a, a, a prayer journal, just a journal of stuff you're praying for, it's, it's so fun to go back in hindsight and read through all the stuff that you prayed over and watch how faithful God has been to you. We serve a faithful God. We serve a loving God. And we have many reasons to praise God because he's so good to us and so faithful. Now, I emphasize that because what's being praised here isn't the thing that immediately comes to the front of our attention when we think about praising God. What are they praising God for here? Because he destroyed Babylon. They're praising God for his absolute devastating destruction upon the wicked. And, and that's not the thing that immediately comes to our mind when we think about singing praise. Oh, I'm going to praise you, God. You destroyed and crushed the wicked. But, but it is a part of our praise that we do praise God for his destruction upon the wicked. Why is that? Well, first of all, we see that theme repeated throughout Scripture. Psalm 48, Psalm 58, Psalm 96, Deuteronomy 32. Just the ongoing theme of praising God for the destruction of the wicked. We're also see it last week in chapter 18, I'll throw it on the screen for you, we're commanded, hey, rejoice over her, O heaven, speaking of her meaning Babylon, being crushed and destroyed, (coughs) rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Here, listen, the reason why is so critically important. Uh, you know it 's been said you know people will work for a for a what but they 'll give their lives for a why the, the why that we worship God for even when he 's destro- destroyed the wicked it 's because listen, righteousness has prevailed that 's why it 's because satan is is the, he 's perpetuated doom and destruction and and, and devastation on, on, an, on an overwhelming scale. We, we got word this morning, and I would ask you to pray for uh, a gal named Tracy. Uh, Tracy and Mirko are, are missionaries in Panama, um, and, and they run Panama's equivalent of, of Hume Lake uh, in, in Panama. And uh, Mirko last night suddenly died and went, went home to be with the Lord. He's a young man, had a massive heart attack, and, and so I, I would encourage you, please pray for Tracy, um, and, uh, and, and you know we're, we're encouraged, and, and, and just her faith is awe-inspiring when she sends a message out talking about the message that he preached literally hours before he died, uh, and talking about how when he dies, he wants to be found a faithful servant. And that he's ready to go and stand before the Lord. And hours later, he would. In fact, his faith would become fact. And he would be standing before the Lord now in glory. And we give the Lord thanks and praise for that. But you think about the heartache and, the, and, and, and all. Just that, that all death is the result of sin. The, the, the reason there's death in the world is because of, of what Satan has done. And so, when we talk about how righteousness prevails in the destruction of the wicked, well, that gives us just a, a there, right there is a, a, a microcosm example of why we should praise the destruction of the wickedness. Because it's the end of Satan and sin and death. And so, and so man, when, when we praise the Lord for the destruction of evil, we're, we're remembering that this is inextricably linked to God's promised salvation. That, that God is worthy of all glory, all honor, all praise, because there's none like him and he avenges the blood of the wicked. He avenges the deaths of, you know, precious in his sight is the death of his saints, as the word says. And, and, and we're grateful for all of that. But listen, even more than that, here's why such, worthy of such praise in, in Revelation chapter 19. This is the crescendo. This is everything come together. It's not just the crescendo of the book of Revelation, and it certainly is that. But it's the crescendo of the entire Bible that here you have God's creation and He's created us for fellowship with Him. And, and, you know, what happens there is He creates Adam and Eve and puts, puts them in the Garden of Eden and, and it's perfect. It's without blemish, and he gives them this sovereign choice, and they choose to rebel against God, and sin enters into the world, and now it runs its whole ugly course, but now here it's been, it's been put down, it's been destroyed, the battle of Armageddon still yet coming, but the praise is, hey God, you get the victory, and now righteousness returns to the earth. And, and so worthy of all of this praise. Now... Here now in Revelation 19, heaven is in this response. Uh, All heaven is rejoicing over God's righteous judgment, over God's righteous reign. We've looked at that, but now the focus shifts to God's righteous bride. Continuing in verse 7, he says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself Ready. This is speaking of the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, you and me. His wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God, and I fell at his feet to worship him, But he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and all of uh, your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we have here the bride of Christ arrayed in fine linen. And, you know, what you need to understand is that our relationship with Jesus, it has always been linked to marriage. You you have marriage, this union of husband and wife. It's the most intensely intimate one flesh relationship that God has created on the face of the earth. And he did so strategically. God has created marriage at this intense level that he gives to you and me through it a, a picture of what our relationship with him is supposed to be. That, that we, we see in this marriage union the picture of, of our union with Christ. We, the church, the bride of Christ, Jesus, our bridegroom, and how we are to be united together. As a matter of fact, it's been said that your relationship, husband and wife, is a reflection of your relationship with the Lord. Which, which, which could bring some conviction. You might have to take a walk with that. Because it may, in fact, be a mirror to your relationship with the Lord. If you're like, hey, things would go pretty good if it wasn't for the missus. Well, man, take a look in the mirror, buddy. You know, maybe there's an issue right now with your relationship with the Lord. And I would suggest that if things aren't right in your marriage, that things aren't right with your relationship with the Lord. But God's given us this intimate picture. Now, to understand this picture fully, we we need to understand marriage from the Jewish perspective. We need to have the, the, the Jewish marriage ceremony perspective. It's critical to our understanding of revelation. So in the Jewish wedding, it, was, it consisted of three distinct stages, very different from our American weddings. Um, first of all, you had the betrothal. Secondly, you had the presentation. Thirdly, you had the wedding ceremony. So we'll look at that. First stage, betrothal. This is your engagement and the betrothal in in the in the, the Jewish tradition very different than than ours. Um, betrothal was a marriage contract, a marriage covenant, and it was legally binding. When you were betrothed in 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 this uh, in this engagement, it was a done deal. This is what was going on with 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 Joseph and Mary when when she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph still isn't aware that this is a work of God. And so what he purposes in his heart is that he's going to put Mary away quietly, which is not a euphemism for he's going to get even with her. That's not what's being said there. No, he's a righteous man. He says, I'm going to divorce her quietly. He was betrothed to her. The wedding ceremony had not yet taken place. And that's the idea here. Um, And so for us, we need to understand this is a picture of Christ. And, and his church, that we have this betrothal. See, again, in, in Jewish tradition, the betrothal, oftentimes that would take place years and years before this couple were even old enough to marry. A, lo- a lot of times the, re- the betrothal took place that the, the parents would make this decision. And again, we in our, in our American tradition were horrified at the thought of mom or dad picking out our spouse and who that's gonna be. Um, and, and you know, some of you gals have been through that. You know, your mom's like, oh, I got the perfect boy. You're like, ah, no way, you know? And uh, I'm pretty sure that was my wife's response. But at any rate, um, no, the, uh, her dad didn't like me, by the way, when we first met. I'll just tell you that. I wasn't, I was a bad boy, uh, and he was right not to like me. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, at any rate, no, the, the betrothal was something that would take place long in advance, and so, this is a picture of Christ in his church in this way, because our betrothal to Jesus Christ, listen, when we enter into that saving faith in Christ, we are now betrothed. There is that binding relational commitment, agreement. We are engaged in that way. Um, we see it in the confines of time. We see it this way. The day that I make my profession of faith in Christ, the the day that I receive Christ as my Lord and Savior is the day that I'm betrothed. Now, God exists outside of time, and so he sees it from a different perspective. Our betrothal to Christ, to God, who exists out of time, he sees it from the foundations of the world. Uh Ephesians 1.4 says this, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in uh, his eyes. And so we're, we're betrothed to him in that way. And so today, if you are saved, if you're in a saving faith in Christ, you are in fact betrothed to Christ. Now, during this betrothal period, two things happen. All right. During the engagement period, the first thing that happens is that the bride is going to prepare herself, especially her wedding dress. Ladies, you get that, right? You're you're engaged. You're working on getting the wedding dress and work and all of that. I mean, I've yet to meet a bride who's like, I don't care. I don't care what I wear to my wedding. It's like, no, it's a big deal, you know. And uh, and so. This is what the bride would do. Now, the groom, he would also prepare. What he would do is he would go and prepare a place for his bride. And and often what this would be, it would be a room built onto his father's house. His father had a house, and the groom would go and build a room onto the father's house. And that would be the the place to where he and the bride would live, and he would bring the bride back to that. Now, that's exactly what Jesus was referencing in, in John chapter 14. Jesus said this. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so this is a direct reference to the Jewish wedding, which perfectly illustrates our union with Christ. Now, So so that's the betrothal, that's the first stage. Second stage is the presentation. See, when the the, the groom would come for his bride to take her back to his father's house, um, the the bride wouldn't know the exact time. Uh, She would know the approximate time, but she wouldn't know the exact time. And so what she would do is that she would watch for the signs of her groom's coming to get her. There's this excitement. There's this anticipation. Oh, I need to get ready and he's gonna come for me. And so that would, that would go down, that she would be getting ready. She's watching there for the signs of his coming. And this is a perfect picture for us of, of the rapture of the church. That we also, we are to, having been betrothed to Christ, now we are to be looking for signs of his imminent, Return And Jesus told us what those signs would be. He said, you know, watch for wars, rumors of wars, lawlessness. He said, the love of many growing cold. And we look and we see these signs and we say, wow, the bridegroom is near to coming for us. And so this is the picture here that we look for. Jesus said this. He said, the kingdom, the, the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Picture of of the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. And uh, it says, But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all, meaning the bride, slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for, uh, for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. <clears throat> so we have the, the betrothal, uh, and, uh, and then we have the presentation, and the third stage is we have the wedding ceremony. This is known as the marriage feast. And in the marriage feast, basically, a lot of times the feast would go on for seven days where all the guests took part in the joy of the marriage. Um, and uh, this is this, the, the, the bride of Jesus Christ and, and you know, the, the marriage feast there. It, it's this nonstop celebration of joy. Why? Well, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, that's you and me, listen, we've made ourselves ready. Now, how do we make ourselves ready for this? That's a good question. It's answered in verse 8. To her, it says, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, when it says To her, it was granted. That word granted is the key to understanding this whole thing. That word granted, it it can literally be translated one of two ways. It it can either be translated given unconditionally or it can be translated given the opportunity to. In other words, (coughs) either the church here is given fine linen unconditionally or the church is given the opportunity to be arrayed in fine linen clean and bright so so which one is it well as you might imagine this is hotly debated by people and and there are those that are saying no 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 it is not given the opportunity to be arrayed in fine linen they are absolutely given fine linen unconditionally God's love is unconditional. His forgiveness, unconditional. His grace, unconditional. So it absolutely has to be unconditional. Well, I'm here to tell you, I think it's both. Both are in view here. And I'll tell you why. Turn to Ephesians chapter uh, 2, and we'll finish up there for today. This is where we'll halt in the book of Revelation, just focusing on the church of Christ and our readiness. But look there in Ephesians chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 8, and here's what Paul says to the Ephesians. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, your salvation is not something that, that you can work for. It's just not. Now, I explain these verses this way. Years ago, when I was in the fire department as a paramedic, we were in, I was working in the city of Paris on this one particular day. Uh, it would be great if it was Paris, France, but it was not. Just, just a little north of here, I was in Paris. And, uh, and we had a bad batch of heroin going around town. And so people are overdosing on heroin left and right. Now, the tricky thing about heroin is when you overdose on it, you stop breathing, so it's kind of inconvenient. So, so we, we're getting called left and right to, to people who have overdosed on heroin. And... For us, as paramedics, it, it's not a huge thing if we get there in time because we start an IV and we give them something that's called Narcan. It's a narcotic antagonist. And it reverses the effects of uh, you know, heroin, methadone, Darvon, Percodin, all those things. So uh, all the opiate-based drugs. So, so for heroin, we get there, we start an IV, we slam some Narcan in there, and, and you, you come back to life, basically. So, so we get to this house. Now, this is no exaggeration. It's like our, maybe our eighth call of the day. We roll up to this, this, this guy's house, and this dude is, he's not breathing. He's, he overdosed in, in his parents' front yard, you know, 16, 17-year-old kid, and they're losing their minds. Whole family's in the front yard. They are just completely losing their minds. They've got the engine crew who showed up before us, all freaked out. So we get there, and the, in, the, the, the engineer literally grabs my partner by the chest, and he says, he's not breathing, man, you know, freaking out. Now, my partner, again, this is like the eighth overdose we've been in on the day. My partner's like five foot six, typical short man syndrome. He's like, hey, hey, I'm here now. It's all right. Like, hey, the, you know, the Messiah's arrived kind of attitude. So, so we drop down. We start an IV on the guy. I drop the Narcan. I hand it to, to Earl, and Earl slams it in. Now, Narcan takes a few seconds to take effect. So Earl slams the Narcan in, hands me the syringe, gets up, makes a big show of it, puts his hand on the kid's head... And he says, rise and be healed. And right on cue, this kid's like, oh, he starts waking up. Family loses, it's a miracle. And they're just, it's a miracle. Now, it looked like a miracle, right? Jesus in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter seven, he's he's coming into the, the town of Nain. And as he walks into Nain, Here comes this cat in his his coffin going to his grave. This dude is dead, and there Jesus is. Now, Jesus walks up to the coffin, and he says, he pulls an earl, but for real. Rise and be healed. This guy rises up, and, and he presents her to his mom. She's, you know, she's a widow. It's her only child, and just she's filled with joy for the work that God has done now. I ask you, what could that guy do to be clean and white and pure? What could he do to save himself? What could he do to rise up out of his coffin on his own? And the answer is nothing. He needed to be rescued. He needed to be saved. That's a picture of us. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death. So we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we are yet sinners Jesus died for us. And so God is in the raising from the dead business. And so what we have here, look, it's granted to the church to be arrayed in fine linen. Hey, it's it's given the opportunity to be raised in fine linen. It's given unconditionally to be raised in fine linen. Well, in the salvation sense, it's given unconditionally. It's granted to the church to be raised in fine linen. It is given unconditionally. God loves you. And if you make the profession, God, I need to be saved. God, I'm a sinner. God, help me. If you understand, so, so many people get it in their mind that, oh, you know, it's a do good, try harder kind of religious existence. It's a, you know, God helps those who helps themselves sort of understanding. No, that's not true. Spiritually speaking, you're the dude in your coffin going to your grave. And unless somebody rises you from the dead, then there ain't no hope for you. There's no. It's not about doing good, trying harder. So, So that part of it is... It's the work of God. This is, this is th- that is given unconditionally. That is true. But verse 10, very next verse. Well, grace, you've been saved. It's not a work, lest anybody should boast. Verse 10 For we are his workmanship. The word is poem, poema, his poem, his work of art. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so what you have here is given the opportunity to be arrayed. See, it's both and. It's where salvation is concerned. Yes, this is an unconditional thing that God has done. It was, it was granted unconditionally to be arrayed in fine linen because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But it was also granted in, in the sense of, hey, you have the opportunity to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen, here it is, is the righteous acts of the saints, what I want you to see here is you are God's workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works. And you are the bride of Christ if you profess faith in Jesus Christ. And so what that means is that the day is coming when Jesus is going to come for his church. And you want to be very careful how you are arrayed at that time. You want to be arrayed in fine linen. And you want to take this to heart. Look, if you are in Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, well, then you have to take the whole package and understand that you are also his workmanship and that he created you in Christ Jesus for good works. And that phrase, good works, is very significant. Uh, In that phrase, we we get the word ergonomic, which talks about this, this fitting work, this, this, this work that, that we think about it in a human term, ergonomic is something that is designed to, to go so well with your physical action that it kind of works seamlessly. Volkswagen had a, an ergonomic theme many years ago in how all their products were ergonomically designed. Well, you have been ergonomically designed in the sense that God has uniquely created you and he wants you to glorify him, to honor him in the way that you live your life, and that your works matter, not from a salvation standpoint, but from a a how you're going to present yourself to him standpoint, what you're going to be clothed in. Revelation 19 there tells us that that it's the righteous acts of the saints that you're going to be clothed in. And so in closing, what we need to do is we need to take a prayerful walk with that.